Good evening, Greek Connections listeners. I'm really excited to be sharing this episode with you. I know this is an interview I've been kind of alluding to for the last couple episodes, but in today's, we speak with Chris Hazel. He's the CEO of Felton Systems. We talk all about their technology, where the company started, and how their kits are really making it a lot easier for cars that are currently on the road to become electric. It's especially of interest to me because while my daily driver is a Tesla Model Y, I do love the 1987 Land Rover Defender 90 we have. The one thing I don't like and usually has caused the most headache is actually the combustion engine in it. So we talk about the kit and many of the other things that they're doing to really make these cars that are on the road be able to kind of come into the new generation of electrification. I also want to apologize because you might notice during this interview I had with Chris that I am a little bit sinusy or more congested sounding than usual. And I was just getting over a cold, but either way, I really am so excited to share this with you and I hope you enjoyed it as well. Thank you. Yes, yeah, so I'm Chris Hazel. I'm the CEO and co-founder of Felton alongside Alex Starwood, who's our CTO. Um, who manages all of our sort of future developments and design side of things. Uh, and we started in 2018 um, and we, we started in the stunt industry. So we started by actually building three high performance stunt cars for a show in Macau just outside of China at Casino, which was the first all electric stunt show, basically. Um, and we built these three high performance vehicles, they're space frame chassis, Tesla batteries, Tesla running gear, and then the two of them had Nissan 350Z shells on. One of them had a Porsche 996 shell on top of it. And they basically used to go out twice a day doing drift demos within the um, casino, but in, inside a closed environment. So obviously the EV stuff was absolutely perfect for that, apart from obviously all the tire smoke. So it was you know <laughs> a little bit better for, for people's health. Um, but when we started doing that, we quite quickly learned that there was a massive gap in the market and no one was doing full systems or kits of any, any level at that point. Um, as we had the bigger players in the game back then, which was the EV West of the world, um, which were fairly well known, but there was sort of no one else really around. They were the only port of contact. So we sort of took it upon ourselves a long time alongside the stunt vehicle stuff. Cause we also did stuff for Warner brothers and Disney and other, for other films, um, which obviously we, we can't openly put on our social media. So many people don't know that we've actually built probably maybe 10 or 12 different stunt vehicles for different films over the years. But alongside that, we were doing design and development of parts and systems for integration. But the stunt vehicles really helped with that because they were they allowed us to do a lot of rapid prototyping. We'd build vehicles, they'd go and run for three months, then they'd come apart. So we didn't have any legacy work going out on the road with our end users. They just had stunt drivers using and abusing the product to find the weak point and what was going to break. So it really did help us sort of move forward quite quickly um, sure. from a development point of view. And then we moved heavily towards the kit design and development um, very much away from the conversion market. So enabling people to do conversions um, and enabling the restoration shops and the sort of the custom shops around the world to actually do a conversion because they're amazing at doing what they do best, which is you know full perfect restoration on Pacific vehicles that they specialize in, but they don't have the knowledge based on the electronics and the EV conversion side of things. So we basically took the approach that we're going to do what we do best, which is the EV conversion system and let them do what they do best rather than us trying to do conversions and never doing anything to their level because you can't like they, they've been doing it for 20 30 years a lot of these shops so the, the finished product they're going to produce around a perfect vehicle model is going to be astonishing compared to us if we were an ev conversion shop trying to do that as well as the ev side of things 
Um, so that's sort of where we focus so far. Um, and I know you've got a load of other questions, which will cover loads of other topics along the way. No, th th this is great. And I, I think um, maybe it's just coincidental. It's funny because uh, hearing your experience and having worked with others who uh, have been in kind of the EV space, not necessarily conversions, but even uh, building EVs that were kind of prototypes that then became actual uh, OEM or uh, pro uh, productized cars. It is really interesting to hear how uh, kind of making these uh, cars for movies that are really usually like cranked to 11 or really put through their paces and kind of just beat the hell out of is actually almost kind of like uh, maybe the modern motorsport of how in the 60s and 70s all these cars would be raced and then through these optimizations they would be kind of find these new things I, I just think it's really funny that i've kind of heard that from a few different people in the industry and it, it does seem to be true that uh, it really puts the cars uh through a pretty high intensity uh and kind of finding those weak points that break and then you're able to really take your learnings and productize it really well and i think that's um i couldn't agree with you more about letting the people who have that kind of uh, subject matter expertise in doing restorations do uh, whether it's restorations in general, or obviously there's a lot of shops that'll do specific uh, makes and models. And so having that, and then this kind of productized uh, conversion kit, I think really is going to start making this a much um, one more approachable, but two kind of a common practice, just because even in my own research and kind of working with different people and looking at it over the years, it can be um, one, very intensive to do, but two, really expensive. And I think just being able to get to this greater scale and what your team is doing uh, is really impressive and it's going to be a huge impact. And I, I'm personally excited to use one of your team's kits to probably do our Defender here in the next uh, uh, year or so. So I think with that, I would kind of love to hear a little bit more about the business because I know yours is kind of an interesting one, how uh, between your original company and then Jaunt, and then you kind of came together. Um, and so you do have kind of this global subject, uh, I guess to use the term subject matter expertise around two different continents. Uh, but if, if you could kind of share that a little bit, I, I think that's a really uh, interesting uh, progression of your company I've seen over the years. Yeah, so we've been, we're running a zero V since 2018. Um, and then when we wanted to start pushing globally as a, as a company, we obviously had to do all our trademarking. But at that point, it became very difficult with the word zero and EV to international trademarks. And there was other companies using the word zero and EV and stuff. So we sort of hit a point very quickly where we knew we weren't going to be able to go ahead with that brand name. So we then did a rebrand last year to Felton. So basically zero V just became Felton. All the business stayed the same underneath, staffing, everything out was just a rebrand. But alongside that, we started talks with Jaunt to try and work out how do we bring in more sort of like-minded people into the company because trying to find staff is really hard and then trying to find people that actually are staff but also capable of running a company and growing a company are even more difficult so what we found with dave and martin that, that own jaunt it was bringing them on board with us it was a massive benefit because in the australian market it's going to grow very very rapidly um and as much as currently they're building finished vehicles through jaunt there'll become a time when there's that transition between they can potentially stop doing joint vehicles and other people start building vehicles and they can supply the kits out to them. It's not yet, but we're going to see that transition happen like we did see in the UK and stuff. Um, and like great. the Australian economy is crazy. So they've gone from, in the UK and the US, we had type one charging, I think you class it as in the US and we call it um, just 
type two charging here, which is just AC charging only everywhere. And mm. then CCS char DC charging came in. Whereas in Australia, all the service stations, they're just putting a DC charging. They're not even putting AC charging in. It just doesn't exist. It's not a thing they're even thinking of putting in. So they just leapfrogged and gone all the other to companies to ages to get to this point. Let's just straight to DC, which is great. But now we're like, oh, now we've got to put DC charging on everything, even if it right. wasn't ever going to have DC charging. Um, but it shows the progression that if you look at the way Australia has gone and then you compare it to maybe some other countries out there that aren't EV focused yet and maybe more, not necessarily, and potentially third world countries in the future, like years down the line, they're all going to suddenly leapfrog to this higher level from day one. They're never going to do the slow progression we did all the way through. They're just going to jump straight to DC fast charging and bi-directional, all this stuff from day one. So Jaunt um, and the Australian tie-up is sort of a really good sort of playground for us, I suppose, in one way yeah. to just see how a new market adapts to EVs at a rapid rate, basically. Um, because that's a really good way of us looking at other smaller countries and going, well, this country is going to do exactly the same thing. And so is this country, but they're all going to do it at their own time over the next sort of 10 years, shall we say. So we might build up a model that works to drop into each of those other countries as they start coming online from the EV point of view. And so there's some really interesting other countries out there, especially things like Thailand, where they're not allowed to import classic cars. So you can import used vehicles. Therefore, their classic car market could be massive because right. the value of them just keep going up and up because you just can't import them. So there's, there's certain countries out there that as EV becomes more normal um, and standardized, we'll, have, we'll find new immersive markets coming online for the classic side of things as well as we go along. Um, so yeah, the tie with Jaunt was mainly because it was allowed us to get into a new market uh, and we had great people in that team from day one that already were really passionate about the EV space um, and brought some very, very sort of, I don't know, different diversity of skill set that we didn't have um, within Felton through Dave and Martin from a commercial side of things and then from the more creative side of things from Dave's point of view from his background, which we really needed within the company. He's been a massive help on our brand, like all the Felton brand sort of thing. He's been so heavily involved in how are we doing the brands, how are we structure it, how we make sure we actually follow brand guidelines um, to grow from that point of view. And then the next thing now is just looking to the US as our next our next big step, I suppose, of how do we enter the US market and grow into that? Um, because there's quite a few new players obviously popping up in the US now. But For how sure. do we take what we've learned in the UK, bring it into the US, um, but do it cost effectively in volume and see if we can understand the US culture because it's slightly different to the UK and Australia. It's um, slightly different to everywhere. <laughs> yeah, I'm slowly getting my head around it now though, and starting to see how we need to do it. It's just, um, obviously, as it's seen now recently, and that's a big eye opener to how, how the US market is from the aftermarket point of view. But sure. to be perfectly honest, this year was so different to previous years when I've been there. It was a completely different atmosphere. Uh, it was all the EV stuff was in the central hall. So it was front and center. Um, and the, the conversations we had this year, the previous years, the people that were completely against it are all starting to come around now. They're all starting to Sort of change their opinion on it they're also i think actually we could have one of each when they're not trying to get rid of v8s they are trying to have both like they they used to see us as the enemy that was trying to just wipe everything out and now they've right. sort of gone well, actually maybe they're not maybe they just want to have best of both worlds there's a place for both in the industry with synthetic fuels as well as with the ev stuff so i'm hoping that both can sort of coexist alongside each other and that the the real sort of so the real lovers of the 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 ice engines will 
sort of accept that they can get really high performance and stuff out of the EV stuff and allow a new generation to come in as well as still having their older stuff as well. Right. And I I do want to actually talk to you more about SEMA and your kind of experiences and the things you learned there. But um, I think for, (laughs) to take a quick step back for US listeners or maybe uh, outside of that, can you tell us a little bit more about what Felton means and where the name comes from? Yes, yeah, so Felton is not pronounced Felton, and I'm not going to try and pronounce the exact way it's meant to be. Um, so it's a Welsh word for sort of lightning slash thunder. That's the, the translation, I suppose, but it's pronounced very differently to how we use it. So there's probably a lot of people in Wales that <laughs> despise the fact we're using the name Felton and we're not pronouncing it correctly. Um, but it's a cool name and we quite like it. And it was very different and no one really used it. So we've taken a very different approach to, I suppose, the other companies in the market because we've gone actually just take a completely irrelevant name in one way and build a brand <laughs> from it. Whereas obviously all the other companies out there are doing something EV related in some way or another. So you understand what they are as a company. Whereas we've sort of gone the opposite and gone, let's do a completely different name that's people only know who we are if they understand and know our brand. Um, which I, I think is a really, and I, I think the story behind it and the the meaning to it is really cool. And it's just a unique sounding name. Um, uh, I, I love the name, but uh, going back to SEMA, I, I want to, I'm not sure, I guess should have discussed this earlier, but how much you can share about what your plans are for this year going into the U.S. market, or if it's still a little too early for that? No, no, we're pretty open. I, there's not really much I keep close okay. to my chest. <laughs> um, so we basically partnered up with Legacy EV which are sort of probably the biggest distribution for EV company in the US side. And they've got all the training courses and all that stuff that go alongside it. So we've been working quite close to the legacy EV team for the last year on and off. But this year at SEMA, we actually did a live build on stage with the legacy EV team. So we actually converted their hot rod to electric using our Zonic motor range and our universal battery pack over four days at SEMA. Now, admittedly, we probably could have done it in one day, but we sort of, you know, it dragged out a bit just to, just to keep people interested. Um, so that drove in as a V8, drove out as electric, and then also did the parade afterwards um, as electric. So that was that was really exciting to do, a bit different. It brought back the old sort of overhauling days sort of thing being done, like a live build at the show, which was quite cool to do. Um, so we've now partnered with Legacy. Legacy are basically going to do our US distribution and support because it's, it's difficult from the UK, I think, to do that support with the time difference. Um, right. So... Plus, there is, as I said, there is the slight culture difference of what support the US customers need the UK customers. So Legacy True. are very good now at offering the training courses and then go, this is the documentation our US clients are expecting to get with your product, whereas we may do that slightly differently. So they're going to be able to do that and hold stock and then the customer comes to them, tell them basically what they want and they can choose the best system for that customer. It may not be a Felton system in certain cases. It may be that they, they're going to run, I don't know, a, a hypercraft system or something like that instead with modular battery packs rather than our, our complete universal pack. Um, it depends on the customer's needs. And that's one of the things we've sort of done with Legacy is we know that they are not just pushing Felton products. They are going to push the best products for those customers, but they're also going to give us a massive amount of feedback on what are they selling the most of, what's the trend in the industry, where is it going, where is the support needed, what new products are needed in the future that we can start developing over here. The other benefit is with us doing this is we don't have to set up a location in the US. We don't have right. to set up manufacturing in the US, which obviously has a huge cost. The the overheads in the US for manufacturing and labor and stuff are considerably higher than the UK at the moment. Um, it may seem wow. from, from the US looking into the UK, it may yeah. seem the opposite. 
but actually from the UK looking into the US and understanding all the taxes and finding staff is hard in the US in certain areas, depending on where you're based, that actually with the Chinese import tariffs as well into the US, it can make it quite expensive to bring Chinese products in. So what we do in the UK is we can bring in Chinese product from the from the uh, China into the UK, but we can do all our remanufacturing in the UK, build those components into systems, into kits, at which point we're doing probably about 60% remanufacturing on product. So at that point, the origin changes to UK. So when it comes into the US, it's got a different tariff on it than the Chinese tariff. So you're already saving, say, a 20% import fee. Which Chinese is wild. Yeah, that, I, I think that's a pretty um, underestimated uh, impact for a lot of these conversions. When I've looked at it, or I was, uh, and I, I think just to kind of go back to just, uh, we have been hoping to get the legacy EV team on probably in a month or so. Uh, they were great. And I actually even personally took their uh, EV training course in May and we're not sponsored by them. But anyone interested in doing it, I can't recommend enough. It was, I, I feel like I already know a lot about the space, but uh, I still learned quite a bit. And it was a lot. I mean, it was kind of, I remember I was talking to their CEO and I described it because I was probably the only kind of like average, maybe uh, <laughs> amateur guy there. Uh, there were people from Shelby America, from all sorts of different actually automotive companies. And I had told him like, you know, uh, each year I try to learn something new. And I, I've done some of this um, to an extent and used to build and race electric uh, cars in high school. But I kind of told my wife or fiance off and think of it as like a uh, adult summer or a summer camp. And so I went down to Phoenix for a week and took the course and it was so much fun and, and made a lot of great uh, connections through it. So anyone that's on the fence, I highly recommend it. Um, but, and I, I think that's great. And your approach to it makes so much sense because there have been other, um, kind of groups out there in the U S that you can buy parts from, but I think they've really mastered the kind of all in one. They have the parts, they have the education, they have the support support and really make it a lot easier and more comfortable to kind of go with them and use them as a, uh, supplier and who you buy your product from. So that, I think that's great. And the way you guys are approaching. And I don't know, can you announce also when you're expecting to start bringing them into the US or have kind of a rough uh, idea for that? I mean, the Zonic Motors are already in the US, the legacy holder stock of them already. So they've already got the Zonic Motor range. Um, and we're already building universal packs potentially to ship into the US. So we're just waiting for orders now, pretty much. Um, gotcha, great. So, I mean, the, the legacy V approach is very good. I mean, it's the approach we did in the UK a couple of years ago with our sitting girls training courses now our tv courses to deliver that but we were doing b2b only um we never did b2c because it was just too much hassle doing the, all the after sales support yeah so legacy are really happy to sell to everyone which for us is great because we never looked at the b2c market um so they're happy to do the, the additional training needed and the additional support and additional paperwork enabled to en enable that the other thing i think people really need to understand is that there's a lot of stuff out there that says, oh, EVs are really easy. There's a lot less moving parts, right. a lot simpler, which it is in one way, but the technical knowledge required to build a battery pack from scratch and then make the mistakes you learn along the way, then build another one or two. It's all, by the time you add all of that time up and it's easier to work for someone like Legacy and buy a system that you know goes for together sure. and you know all the software works and you know you've got support of how to wire it. Um, as much as it's great for someone, if they can afford the time and the money to do a from scratch build, by the time you've done that from scratch build, at the end of it, you'll go, next time I am not doing this. I'm going to buy a pre-made kit because the amount of time that goes into it is vast. 
and the customers are the same like we found with some of the b2b customers we work with it's like they say to their customer the cost of the parts is this or the cost of the kit is this and say so the cost of the kit i don't know is 20 30,000 more but then when they go actually it's going to take us this much in labor to build it from scratch or buy a kit that labor is what we have very tied up into our kit and done all that work on to fine tune it and, and soak up all that labor time so the b2b company is not the business is not having to actually do you know thousands of hours of design development and building a kit from scratch they're going to build one of it's very hard in the, in the world of the conversion world to make good money from it if you're doing yeah. loads of different vehicles because every vehicle is a fresh build every vehicle is a fresh development and you've got to look at reliability long-term safety whereas with a kit that's been fully developed and we're building say 50 100 of kit a year minimum we've done all that for and we've spent all that money because we can afford to because we're building them in a batch and you're never going to get that i suppose on a one-off there's always going to be some level of compromise or a huge amount of additional labor so there isn't any level of compromise which makes it extremely expensive to do a one-off for sure and i i think probably the biggest thing people don't understand is there are elements in doing a conversion that are tedious but they're not insurmountable building the battery from the cells to the modules that is incredibly tedious, trying to get all of those different connections right. It's not as straightforward, I think, as a lot of people think. Um, and especially if you're, this is like your first time, if you're going to do a build yourself, I, I could not recommend uh, doing a pre-built battery pack more. Um, that'll save so much headache. <laughs> Honestly, it's it makes it a lot safer too, because it really does uh, minimize how much of the uh dangerous parts of the pack that are the the battery that you're going to be most exposed to and um i mean yeah th there's going to be enough kind of headaches and work you have to do with kind of the low power 12 volt schematics and figuring that out that taking it to the battery pack level uh, just becomes infinitely more difficult i remember when i was at the legacy ev program we were kind of doing a mock-up of building your own and it took us like two hours just to do like a couple of them and they're like okay now that's the first uh set and now you've got 12 more to do and even then it, it just wasn't it just yeah i i couldn't recommend it uh and it, plus it you're is... hand crimping everything exactly you know? you're, you're um yeah. we QA, do everything here is yeah. automated made so all the exactly auto crimped with stripping and crimp machines stuff like that so we know every crimp is perfect and we're not going to get an issue whereas hand crimping if we used to do years ago you know, the, the biggest issue with most builds, it becomes a wiring harness because you get one bad crimp or one bad connection and you could yep. be chasing it for ages trying to work out where is that bad connection or it gets water ingress because it's a bad connection. So it's just, there's all these little bits that you don't see, I think, when you do your first build and then you learn and go, oh, if I'd done it this way, I wouldn't be chasing that fault. Exactly. And even um, a bad crimp on a low voltage system isn't good, but it's manageable. <laughs> Once you start yes. getting to the actual battery side, like the impact is so much larger of like just what looks like a good, uh, you have to pretty much test it sometimes. That's the only way you can tell because you eyeball it and you would know, have no idea that the resistance is as high as it is in that one specific one. And so it, it I can't recommend what you guys are doing now. I think, I think it's great. And so good to be seeing this going at a larger scale. Um, I guess maybe like hopping back a little bit to, I, I know we were kind of focused on the North America part and we do have a lot of North American listeners, but we have quite a few in Europe. And I, I think it'd be great uh, because I've been really impressed with what you guys are doing as well in the UK around education and here in the US. And it, it's been really fun working with the legacy EV people, but they've even said it is uh, 
kind of the wild west as far as the regulations and the specifics i think they just announced at sema that there has now become uh, more of an official certification and kind of recognition of that whereas i know in the uk yes. you guys already have a decent level of um official certifications and requirements that conversions have to meet we sort of do <laughs> so we have the Euro european regulations which is gotcha. the tuv which is very, right. very strict. And then there's something called R100.1, which is to do with mainly battery box safety. So does it meet these safe, that safety, you know, is it in a enclosure? Has it got blow off valves? Has it got uh, high voltage disconnects? Has it got HVL? Has it got like all these safety things in place? So that's R100.1, which is becoming more mandatory now in the UK that every EV conversion has to have an R100.1 check just to make sure the base level of safety is there. Um, it's not mandatory yet. So what we've been doing as Felton is we basically looked at the OEM standards and gone, we want to build everything to OEM standards and spec. And then we know no matter whatever happens, if anyone does ever have an accident, anything ever goes wrong, we've done everything we possibly could to meet OEM standards. We can't do any more than that. Whereas mm -hmm. obviously there's a lot of people, I suppose, globally, that they don't need to meet any standards. So they will right. cut corners. They'll do what they think is best because they've got nothing to follow. So at SEMA, we announced something called EvTech which I'm actually on the board of EvTech and the EvTech is there to help set these standards from a educational point of view to try and set you. Know, these are the standards that you have to learn in order to be EvTech qualified. Um, and from a safe, from a safety standards point of view, so there's two sides of it. So I'm heading up the safety side of EvTech um, along with Chris, who's also my trainer in the UK to try and go up. These are the base standards we want to impose in the UK and across Europe just around base safety, you know, like that battery management systems must be used and that the battery managers need to be inside the battery pack, not outside the pack. And it right. needs to be a sealed box that you can't get wet. You know, it's just, there's a base, base level of safety, which is fairly easy to achieve that probably makes a, a system 99% safer just from doing those base couple of things. And then the last 1% is the really hard bit to make even safer, but we've been, We've been incredibly clever with the way we design our systems so that you can't run our systems without the safeties in place, or you have to actively do a bypass willingly. So like our CCS kit, for instance, um, you have to have HV isolation sensing. Otherwise it does not operate. You have to run HVL, which is HV isolation monitoring. So if you ever unplug something, it will open the contactors. So there's no HV on that plug you've just unplugged. Um, so there's certain things that we've been trying to put in place, which you cannot bypass and therefore you have to do it a certain way. And what we found is because we are one of the leaders in the market, if we do that, people naturally do it. Whereas if we allow people to do, have the option to do it wrong, they'll just always do it wrong. Right. So we basically have been designing our products and say, actually, this isn't waterproof. Therefore you must put it inside of a silver battery pack and you cannot bypass this. So if you want CCS charging, you have to run it. Otherwise you just don't have CCS. So there's just, there's all these things we've been doing, which is, I suppose some people don't like us for doing it, but overall we prefer to make sure the systems and the conversions on the market are safe because it only takes one bad system oh, that yeah. has a massive problem and hurts someone for it to damage the entire market. So what we're trying to do is make the whole market safer because it protects us as a company long-term because it only takes one person that's built a bad conversion to electrocute themselves. And then suddenly the whole market's got a really bad name for itself when actually it was just one person not following any standards. So it's we've been trying to impose impose standards that people can't bypass shall we say right. um within the systems that we sell and that we supply 
And also we've been tying that into our warranties as well to say like, if you want your warranty on your battery pack, for instance, because we're trying to, we're going to, we will be starting to offer like a three-year warranty on a battery pack. And it's like, well, the only way your warranty is maintained is you must do these downloaded data every every quarter to log the data and it must be wired in this way. Otherwise your warranty is void. So that makes someone do it properly because they want warranty, because it helps them resell the product to their customer. Yeah, that, that makes a lot of sense. I, I think one of the takeaways when I did the uh, EV course was um, kind of tangential to that, not necessarily like someone trying to cut corners, but uh, they, they had a couple of really good examples of conversions of people who are kind of coming from the traditional kind of resto mod or uh, uh, restoration uh, business that were doing the electric car. And so like the wiring and a lot of these were done really well. But when you start thinking about like, okay, uh, you have the battery pack, but then you also put your fuses and a lot of these kind of safety controls right behind it. So in the event of like a head-on collision, the battery is just going to go into that and just destroy those. And then you could have a fire very quickly. Um, and so there, there's like, there's two elements. And I, I think what you and the uh, Legacy EVT are, are doing the, exactly the right thing. It was, it was great to see what was kind of announced and being done at SEMA too, to kind of help like, okay, there, there's two components. There's doing it right uh, or doing it safely and doing it in a very high uh, efficient manner. But then also you do have to kind of just change your thinking of where you put these devices to even uh, make the, ideally the car safer than when it was a combustion engine vehicle. Um, so then when it does get an accident, there's an even better likelihood of either someone walking away or at least not it being a, uh, truly devastating uh, accident yeah i mean i think in a lot of situations you don't know what you don't know and exactly the training exactly. courses like we, we've seen it in the past and there's there's people that because they don't know they think they're doing things safely and as you learn more knowledge like i'll look back now at stuff i did 2018 and think oh my god i did that like how did i make that like why did i make that but my knowledge base is very different now so i think the training courses that are out there even if they don't give you everything you need to know about EV conversion, at least I'll show you how not to be dangerous. Right, what not and to And what do. is dangerous. Yeah, right. and what not to do. And that is just as important in a lot of situations. Um, and you've said about crash safety. So on all of our packs, we do uh, 20G crash simulations oh, wow. to make sure that the mounting points will take a 20G crash, which also because everything's designed in CAD, we can do that. We can do a simulation in CAD to make sure that if it was in a crash scenario, that, and that's part of the Australian regulation. So in order Ooh, to put EV on the road in Australia, you have to prove to the engineer that yes, you can weld new brackets onto the chassis and you can make modifications, but you have to show that any modifications you've made will sustain a 20 G crash. Hmm. So that's the, that's the way they've done it. So they've allowed you to make modifications, but you must be able to show simulations and that it would be safe in a 20 G crash scenario. Um, and that's also made us up our game on certain ones of our pack designs and how we've done it for the Australian market and gone, actually, we do need to add some extra brackets in here or some extra fitting points here because when we did the crash simulation, it didn't quite meet 20G. So with us being so diverse across so many sort of countries, we're picking up different bits of regulation from different countries, which means we probably go a bit too extreme for some countries, but it means we've sort of condensed all of them together into sort of a a standard that we follow, which makes us be able to meet Australian standards as well as UK and European standards, as well as potentially US standards, which don't exist yet, but we know whatever we produce here and we push into the US, 
normally above and beyond the standards that are in the US because they haven't yet been set. I think, I, I mean, that that's great. And I think uh, just once that's it just goes back to what I was saying earlier. It's one more example of when you're building or doing a conversion for the first time, it's like, why overcomplicate this and puts, I mean, you might as well do it right and make the conversion of it a lot, one safer, but also in my opinion, more enjoyable, just uh, mitigating a lot of these other challenges that someone's already figured out for you. With um, kind of looking at the US market, uh, with everything your team uh, did at Seaman, I, I was really, I wish I'd been there this year. Uh, that was my honeymoon. So understandably, I didn't make it, but I'm sure I'll be there. Uh, maybe we'll do our anniversary in Vegas or something <laughs> to go to it next year. Uh, why not? Um, and, and admittedly, Vegas is not my favorite place, but it was very uh, entertaining to watch and see everything on kind of the social medias of what your team and everyone was doing at Seaman, especially around the EV announcements. And I, I think it is kind of interesting that EVs have been kind of a difficult one for, uh, especially like you take like a Tesla Model 3, you can kind of modify it, but it's going to be more aesthetic generally, especially at SEMA than like actually improving the car. Um, but that is where you're starting to see this huge kind of uptick in interest around the restoration, the resto mod, where you can take a lot of older, beautiful cars and so many great looking cars had just terrible powertrains and this is kind of where you can take that and put a battery pack and motor in it and really turn the car from uh something that had been kind of boring to not just uh, a sleeper but also just a really great driving and fun car for even around town or on the weekends but i, I i'd be curious to kind of hear like because uh this wasn't your first time how many uh, sema events had you been to before Five, I think. Oh wow! Okay. So I actually went to SEMA the first time before I started Zero EV slash Felton. So the 2017, I went, and at that point, I was doing Liberty wide body cars and like gotcha. playing with V8s and V10s and stuff. So I went then, and even when I went then, I was quite surprised there was literally no EVs. There. I think there was two EVs. There was a Porsche 911 and some drag racer hidden up somewhere yeah, up yeah, the yeah. way. Um, and obviously COVID happened, so I sort of there was gaps when I didn't go because of because of the COVID thing. But it has um, changed drastically in the last couple of years since I've been going to CMOS, and just how much more accepted it has become. And it's starting to take over a lot quicker, and a lot more of the builders are now starting to get involved with it and seeing it as the next the next thing. It's the a lot of these custom shops have built V8s for days. They've all, and it's like, well, what do we do next? Oh, we've already done loads of twin turbos, and we've done this, and we've done that. Like, what's next? So to a lot of these these custom shops, they're going, well, actually, they, they're not bored, but they're getting to a point where they, they want the next new thing. And the EV stuff suddenly opens up another another revenue stream for them and also something different. And it, it helps them bring in younger generation as well into the custom space. And I think that's what we find quite exciting is that suddenly we've got a different demographic. Um, like when you walk around SEMA, SEMA is very much a very specific demographic that attends. Yeah. But... What we're trying to work out now is can we produce an EV movement for retrofitting of classics that bring in those younger generations, the ones that love the way a classic look but would never own one because they've got no idea how to maintain it. They know how to look at an iPhone and play with their apps. Right, right, That's right. what they want. They want to go on there and see what their car is doing. They don't know how to change the oil. They don't know how to do all that. So I think there's this new demographic that will come in that will sort of keep the aftermarket running from a classic point of view but they will want electric classics. They want stuff that they know they can get in every day and drive it. 
And we've seen that with a lot of our customer base that we're supplying out to now. It's like you'll do an electric Porsche that was only ever driven on the Sunday. Suddenly it yeah. becomes, I drive that car every single day as my daily driver. Because suddenly I can, I can get in it every morning. I know it's going to start. I know it's not dropped oil all over the floor. You know, I, I know I've not got a 60,000 pound engine rebuild after a couple of years of driving it hard. Right. Like there's all these things. Right. And you suddenly realize that actually the, we were building EVs for some of the companies in the UK and they were like, oh, we're building them and they'll just be weekend cars. And then it came very apparent pretty quickly that what we thought was going to be a weekend car for most people suddenly became that everyday driving car because it was just so much easier to drive being EV that they could actually appreciate it a lot more and use it all the time. So I think the approach now for the EV conversion will really allow us to have more classics on the road. Um, and it will bring about a completely different market, I think, with a very, very different demographic moving forward to, to keep them alive. And there'll be, I think you'll see a lot more of them because right now we, it's a bit depressing that people have got all these beautiful classic cars globally. And yet most of the time you see them only on certain days of the right. year. And maybe at a cars and coffee yeah. thing once a year. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. Exactly. And it's like, well, how do you get these cars being driven all the time again? And I think the yeah. EV is the route for that. No, and I, I've, I've been kind of impressed with that too. I think there is, uh, I like to think I know enough about kind of car maintenance and I know for a lot of people, it's a skill they just don't have or uh, for a, a, a kind of myriad of reasons. But what I have seen that I think is also kind of cool, kind of tangential to that is like maybe uh, their dad passed away or a husband passed away. And now the EV conversion thing does make it much more easier for them to as you, exactly like you're saying, keep a very beautiful, but also a very expensive to maintain car on the road and something that they can still kind of enjoy and have that connection to without uh, the stress of, I mean, it, it can be a decent upfront payment, but once you have that, you don't have to exactly like you're talking about with the Porsche engine rebuilds and uh, many, many different kind of things that can sneak up on you. Um, it's also the asset side of things. It's like go and buy sure. a new EV and you lose for half sure. the value in a year in, in the first two, three years, for instance. Yeah. Or you buy That's a classic. Admittedly, you spend more on it to convert it, but the base asset isn't depreciating in anything. It's appreciating in value. So there's right. a different, I think it's to do with mindset. It's like, I prefer to go and buy, like I, last year, I think I drove my Porsche G body every day, day in, day out. Now that car has gone up in value since we bought it. Um, yeah. You know, whereas if we'd gone and bought a brand new Tesla, we'd probably lost the value in that two-year time period. Exactly. And we haven't. If anything, the car we've done, because it's a non-intrusive conversion, the car value stayed the same. If anything, it's gone up. So it's just trying to work out the mindset. I think as we get more into kits, bolt-in kits that are quick and easy to fit, potentially we need to look at how we can offer sort of more finance packages on them to go, you've got a classic, you can do a, you know, a so many five-year finance package on the kit that's in that vehicle. And then it's like someone buying a new car at that point. They just finance it over five years. Right. But they take you know, a classic I, I, at the beginning, finance it over five years. And at the end of it, the valuation of the car is still where it was when you bought it or higher. So you haven't lost that money either, which is quite good. Exactly. And I think you brought up a really good point with um, a lot of your kits, especially, and with what I think the kind of premier conversion companies are doing, where it's a bolt-in kit. It's not, uh, I mean, there's been a lot of people who do the DIY, uh, DIY ones and it can get a little uh, messy, needless to say. But I think what's yeah. really cool with a lot of these kits is it's uh, designed to be either no penetrations or different than what, what the car already was um, or very minimal if there are any. So you can actually 
if you decide down the road or you give it to someone and they want to make it back to a combustion engine, it's still a possibility. Um, but I, I think that just makes it a very clean conversion and uh, honestly safer in general too. Um, with that, I know you're obviously uh, really starting to scale up the universal battery pack, but you do have a few uh, brand and model specific kits. Can you talk a little bit more about those and kind of where you see those kind of fitting into uh, yes. the different products you're offering? So the universal pack wasn't actually a universal pack at the beginning. <laughs> it was actually designed for our new Defender kit that comes out in Q2. And it just happened to be that we went, oh, this actually fits all these other vehicles. It was not planned. It just But it, what it allowed us to do then is go, actually, we can start producing this battery pack in volume before it starts going into the Land Rover Defender. So we can start bringing in some cash flow, basically, on right. something we'd already designed. Instead of leaving it sat on the shelf for another eight months before we then started building the kit, we could start building that and pushing it through. So we started with the Porsche 911. So we have the Porsche 964. And uh, end of Q1, we start do, building the Porsche G-Body kits as well. Um, so they're a 62 kilowatt hour battery pack, Tesla large drive unit. Now they're the only system we actually still run uh, sort of recycled components in. So we do a full refurbishment on a large drive unit, mainly because to get that performance in a brand new motor makes the kit way too expensive. It's, way, it's mm -hmm. expensive anyway, but it makes it adds like another £20,000 to the kit cost because right. the, the high-end motor kit systems are just very expensive. Um, but that's also got CCS rapid charging for CCS one or CCS two, depending on what your base, um, and also AC and you know heating, gear selection, gauges, like every single bit you need to convert that Porsche comes in that kit. Even all the coolant lines and everything. So it's a it's probably a one week install on the Porsches because they're quite technical, um, but it maintains the original balance of the vehicle. It is about eighty kilos heavier overall, so it's about a person heavier. But the power delivery and the, what you get from it is above and beyond. Right. Where it originally was, it's, you know, you're at Porsche Turbo Territory or but, um, from, from the power delivery and stuff, which is really, really good. Um, and I said the G-Body one is coming out Q1. So we're starting to build them in Q1 and start rolling those out, Very cool. which will open up market a bit more because the G-Bodies are sort of more common, I think, across yeah. across the US and stuff. And same in the UK. So, so the one we've got here is a G-Body. We've got a 964, but the G-Body is the one that we've done a lot more miles in. Um and then we also have the mini kit. So we actually developed that alongside BMW. So we did it as a marketing thing for BMW. We built five of them, three prototypes. Oh. And we built one for Paul Smith and one for McQuainer. And they went out uh, sort of with the new electric mini offering. So it was like, go to a show and you've got classic electric and you've got the new mini offering. Um, and we've then continued building those kits, basically, which there's a couple of companies now offer those kits. I think there's uh, Vintage Underground in the US that offer them and one or two others. The names escaped me. And in the UK, we have a company called Recharge Heritage, which we actually yeah. own a small amount of. But oh, that cool. holds a five-year contract with BMW to use the BMW wings on the Classic Mini. Oh, so no. when you buy a car there, it actually comes with the BMW branding on it because we're allowed to put that branding on those vehicles, which is a really good deal we managed to sort of do with BMW, which was good. So that kit is at a, such a high level now that you know BMW were happy for us to put their branding on the product, which That's was a, a really good thing. Yeah. And then alongside that, we've now have the Land Rover kit. So we did develop a Land Rover kit. We sort of stopped, then we did a redevelopment, <laughs> mainly because we wanted to do it justice. And when we when we produce the kit and release it into the wild, well, we could have produced a Land Rover kit a couple of years ago, and we could have used Tesla motors and batteries and stuff. But we sort of hit a point where actually, if we're going to do this, we want to do it all brand new product. 
large scale repeatability because it will move into places like the mining industry and other places. So we went, we decided actually we want to go all out on our kit and build the best we possibly can. And then when we productionize it, the pricing point will come down because we'd be building volume of them. So our new Defender offering, which I'll just do a plug now because we're about to start, we, we're happy to start taking orders for them. <laughs> no, I mean, I'm, I'm totally at the mouth and I, I, I can't <laughs> um, wait to do it. So, and I'll be getting built as a Q2, so we'll start building them then. And the kit's looking, starting to look really good. So it's the universal 55 kilowatt hour pack in the front. But we've then designed a bespoke seat box. You actually take out your old Defender seat box and you drop in a new seat box. And that contains another 55 kilowatt hours of battery oh, wow. in cool. the seat. So you've got 110 kilowatt hours. You can have just 55, but in most situations, 110 is great because that's the that's that sweet spot. That's at 200 miles range plus, which everyone what, wants uh, to be. A Defender is a breath, though, It's like the worst vehicle. <laughs> uh, at 55, are you? Have you tested? Is that usually around just like a hundred miles range, or what? That's a hundred mile-ish range. Yeah. yeah. Um, it all on the Defender. It all depends how fast you're going. As soon as you For go sure. over that, like 45 miles an hour, that's when yeah. the aerodynamics really come into play and it just... <laughs> I don't know if you can battery. say aerodynamics with a Defender. It's just this reality. Is what, this is, yeah. yeah, so um, we're trying to do what we can to make it as efficient as possible. So we've also got to try and cool. guide our customers and say, look, please don't put a snorkel on it. It's an EV. You know, run sensible <laughs> tires. Right. Like, There's all these things that, like which have a massive impact on range. Um, you know, if someone hits air ride in one way, it's good because they can run it lower at speed to so just lower that 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 that, that, that air gap under the vehicle. So there's there's benefits that can be had. That's one interesting. Really important thing we are doing on the Defender to try and so we're doing everything now on the EV side to make it as efficient as possible. Which in the past on the other cars we weren't too worried because it's like uh, it's a Porsche, it's a Mini, it's small, it's light-ish, we'll yeah. still get good range. <laughs> Defender, that's obviously not the case. Like we went and stuck 110 kilowatt hours in a Mini. We get like 400 miles of range or something similar yeah. to that as long as the weight There'd be sparks as you're kind of just hitting the ground everywhere. Yeah. But you think the, the Mini does 110 miles on a 19 kilowatt hour battery pack. Wow. And the Defender right. does and is, 100 is miles the... on a 55 kilowatt hour battery pack. So you can clearly see the, the difference here between the vehicles is just absolutely crazy. And now, what is the, uh, is it 19 kilowatt hours? Is the size of the Mini Cooper conversion kit or is it a larger yes. battery than that? Gotcha. No, no, so it's a 19 kilowatt hour because we wanted to keep the weight exactly the same. So the car gotcha. is the same weight gotcha. as it was for factory. It's That's actually cool. five kilos lighter. And that was the important thing with the Mini is we wanted to make sure it still drove and felt like a Mini. That the engine was never the special part of the Mini. Right, it right, was right. how it drove and how it felt. was That was what made a Mini a Mini. So we had to keep the weight the same and the, and the weight distribution the same. Otherwise, you'd have just lost all the character. You need to get like the Porsche. We kept the same weight distribution, which... Some people don't like, and other companies will do 50-50 weight distribution on Porsches, which I get, I, I get, and it probably makes yeah. the vehicle drive even better. But for the Porsche enthusiasts, they wanted it to still feel like a Porsche. Right. So it was like, right, you're taking away this, this flat six engine, which does sound beautiful. We don't also want to change the driving characteristics as well. We, we kept some of that character in there, um, which, you know, has pros and cons. Right, um, right. <laughs> with the Defender, we've, we've gone to the extreme now when it comes to the motor solution. So we've actually okay, just tell me more finished now. developing a, so a dual torque vectoring gearbox. Now, some people really? understand what that is, some people won't. So basically, we have two motors, and then we have a central gearbox. But the central gearbox is actually two gearboxes in one, so it's not got a differential in the middle. So it means oh. each motor runs through its gearbox, and it can control each prop shaft separately. So your front and rear prop shafts are, in theory, just controlled with separate motors. Essentially, yes, yeah, 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 yeah. Essentially, Interesting. yeah. Um, 
so we've been developing that now uh, and we've just ordered all the first prototypes. So sort of January, February time, we get first prototypes of those, which will allow us to basically on the Defender have a very powerful system. So we're going to run yeah. the Zonic motors. So we can have two Zonic 70s. We can have a wow. 70 at the front and a 180 at the rear, or we can run two Zonic 180s. So we can have you know 360 kilowatts of power at something like 720 newton meters of torque at the motors. So we're at the thousands of newton meters of torque when it gets to the wheels. So it would be pretty yeah. quick. Um, <laughs> but the big benefit here is we yeah. can work on efficiency. Sorry, are you building well, a... How much regen can you get out of these things? Because that's the other issue with the difference. Oh, crazy. You got it getting yes. up to a speed. You want it to really break hard. I mean, it will stop well. Because we've got independent yeah. um, motors, we can basically put, that's like in a lot of situations, you either have a motor in the rear or a motor in the front, or you have a central motor that shares. But because we're independent motors, we can do more regen braking on the front via the rear. So we can get the braking balance correct, which is really good. But we can also do a level that's of traction one. control based on wheel speed sensors. So we can make sure also we don't lock the wheels up on regen and things like that so there's a level of traction control we can implement the i keep saying you know we've if you done need a u.s tester i am in that yeah. is so sweet that is absurd <laughs> so, that is so cool i, 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 I play I mean, the, the, I, I play the game on the gonna... sport vectoring yeah it, yeah it's, it, it should help efficiency because we should be able to in theory when you're doing motorway speeds shut down the rear motor and just run on the front motor so we can well, keep was, motors in efficiency bands which i was going to really say easy. are they going to be geared differently they're not geared differently now, but okay. it's we would look at how Tesla have done it because they, yeah. in a lot of situations, if we can talk a customer into having a Zonic 70 and a Zonic 180, so have a 70 in the front, 180 in the back, that's where we think we're going to get our peak efficiency because we can run on 70 at certain times, right. 180 at other times based on its efficiency range. Unfortunately, in the US market, most people just want as much power as they can possibly get. Right, right. So in a lot of situations, they're not doing it for efficiency. They want two 180s. Um, ideally, I would prefer to do every vehicle with a 70 and a 180 because they both have different peak efficiencies at different yeah. RPMs. So then you're still going to have a, get... a great amount of power. Yes, you're still going to have a huge amount of power, but it's, <laughs> yeah. it's a hard it's a hard sell. Um, so, uh, theoretically, also with the torque vectoring, it's performance as well. Like when you yeah. do first pull away, we can put more power to the rear motor, less to the front, and then as the as you go for your zero to sixty run, we can transition the power between front and rear based on grip and weight distribution change and all that sort of stuff. So there's some really clever stuff we can do there. So we, we've got a lot of work to do on the torque vectoring side of things, but it'll be more of a, here's a system that works, it's great. And then over the next year or so, we'll do more, more and more and more testing. And then there'll be software updates going along where you'll be like a Tesla, you can do a software update and suddenly get more range or suddenly get more power. The chances are that's what will happen with our Defender kit is the first kits will go out and then a year later, it'd be like, would you like to do a software update? And we'll update the VCU to a new software uh, basically file that will allow it to then have higher performance and higher range or something based on the data we've gathered over a year period of doing testing. So there's a lot of really cool stuff we can do with that. The other thing we are doing on the Defender, which a lot of companies aren't doing, is we're doing AC cooling for the battery pack and motor. Cool. So we basically cool. looked at how Tesla Model 3s have done it and gone, Tesla's doing it this way for a reason. How can we do a similar system? Um, to Tesla to t basically be able to use motor heat to heat the batteries or use AC cooling to cool the batteries and potentially cool the motor and all this stuff. So we're doing a very clever rad pack for the front of the Defender basically that has multiple valves and it has an AC um, heat exchanger in there and a motor heat exchanger and all this stuff. So you can basically move all these different temperatures around throughout the system to try and keep the batteries at the optimum temperature, which means you get the most range. Try and keep the motors at the optimum temperature so you can always do a crazy amount of launches and um, so all this sort <laughs> yeah. of clever stuff basically and faster ccs charging speeds because 
yeah. can rapidly cool the batteries to charge faster. Because currently, well, and I mean, just kilowatt, but... for the health and longevity of the battery too, um, let alone all of that. I mean, that that's kind of one of the interesting things when I was doing the legacy EV course. Um, they're based in Phoenix. So they're talking about cooling the battery pack and all that stuff, which totally makes sense and is huge. Uh, but where I live in central Oregon, uh, like this morning, well, of course, I'm going to say in Fahrenheit, uh, it was uh, high 20s, which in uh, Celsius would be like negative two, I think, roughly. Um, yep. And then, but in the summer, it can be in mid to high 30s Celsius. <laughs> I mean, it's it's the kind of this high. It's the same in the UK. We've 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 got the extreme. Yeah. Um, yeah. Both ways. Same in Australia. We've got the extreme in Melbourne, where we're based. Exactly. There. So it's like, how do yeah. we how do we create a system that can do AC cooling, but also do heating of the battery in one system? And that's what we've been working on with the Defender is trying to. This is one rad pack setup that can work in Arizona, or you know somewhere stupidly cold. So it, right. it's one system that can basically cover both. So it doesn't matter where we're supplying the kit into. It's the same set system, basically the same setup. Um, so it's now, and that that'll also have software updates as well, which will be, you know, as we develop that system more, we will we'll find certain scenarios where we can get better performance out of the batteries, better performance of the motors, as we as we do more and more testing and gather more and more data. So there's going to be key people we're building these kits for that we will be running like data logging on the vehicles. So continually yeah. taking data in of every vehicle over a period of time. I mean, there will be that anyway on every system for warranties and also preventative maintenance. So that the big thing on the, the Defender Kit is the most advanced system we're basically producing and it's the latest system. Um, and we will have data login on there. So providing the customers given permission, the garage or the, the shop that's fitted the kit will have a login and they can we can basically set flags. So if we see a temperature spike or we start seeing voltage spikes and things like that, we can basically bring the vehicle in preventative maintenance. So we yeah. know if a fan is failing or we know if a water pump starting to fail or we know if a battery cell was going bad or like there's all this data we can we can take in and we can basically build uh, an algorithm to go this car has a failing water pump you need to bring it in and repair it before it fails on the customer and that's something you can't do with ice engines yeah i mean right this now. wait wait like, we can self-diagnose yeah that, which is great. i mean wait, what you're talking about is auto oem and then some grade um yes whereas like a lot of these ev conversion i mean i was excited for this a drop-in battery pack for the defender i thought that was cool but everything you've just said in the last 10 minutes has kind of now blown my mind as to what is possible from uh well one driving and handling but two performance once again i think i think that's really just um under recognized is uh how important it is to kind of keep that voltage consistent and the temp to really make sure that it lasts as long as it could. And if you do that right, it can last for so much longer than uh, just, I think some of the systems we're seeing in these, a lot of EV conversions. Um, well, even in the OEM stuff, when you look back yeah. at the old Nissan Leafs and all that yeah, stuff. That's, that's which, exactly what I was going to yeah. say too. It's quite amazing that we, as a, as a development of a smallish company that we are, we can develop systems that are, close to OEM level because we understand software, we understand hardware and all this stuff. We're not having to, when it came to the old ice stuff, you'd have to have manufacturing of engines and like all these stuff. Whereas now it's all software right. hardware based, which we can do with just a, a, a small, very clever group of people and implement that and get to, we're not going to get to OEM level, but you know, we can get to a level where of reliability and performance, I mean, which 
the end, a lot of the, the stuff you're talking about, yeah, it's it's better than like you said the early EVs, and it's better than uh, combustion vehicle. I mean, inherently, the fact that you can have uh, data communication back to let you know makes it better <laughs> than most combustion vehicles on the road. Uh, for we, we can also flash yeah. over the data communication lines to updates, but it's not something we're probably going to do just because of sort of safety. From yeah. Sort of, we 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 don't have billions of dollars to put into <laughs> safety like Tesla do when they do an over the air update. So right, we got to right, be right. careful when it comes to that. So there's certain things we won't allow to happen, even though we could. It's too high a risk um, from a, like a safety sort of scenario, I suppose. But yeah, so I'm really excited about that. We have got a couple of other projects we're working on. So we've been doing a lot of battery packs for marine industry recently. Oh, cool. um, for companies that are producing electric outboards. So we're now producing the battery packs to go with those. Um, and that's obviously, it's very similar to our vehicle-based batteries that we put in cars. It's just, we've got to be very careful with the IP rating like we do with cars anyway. But there's there's a couple of other scenarios we need to be careful of to do with saltwater ingress over time because it's a little yeah. bit more brutal than the, the normal rainwater. Um, yeah, saltwater. Right, right, right. Which I, I think um, is awesome. Yeah. I mean, that, that kind of expertise and... Uh, building knowledge only means your products are going to be that much more resilient and tougher. So that's great to hear you guys are doing that too. Uh, and then there's some, there's a cup, there's another vehicle we are just about to start working on, which is uh, more of a two seater sports car style vehicle, um, which will be 108 kilowatt motor and have 40 something kilowatt wow. hour batch pack. But it's, it's sort of a, we're trying to see now if we can do something that's a bit more of a, you can take it on a track day. You can go and do some runs on the track. You can, DC fast charge it and take it back out again. Uh, we want to see if we're at that level yet. I don't know if we are. We're going to be pushing it, but I hope we're not far off now that we can start doing some sort of retrofit vehicles for track use. Um, gotcha. So this would be a drop in for a track car sort of situation. Yeah, yeah. So there's a there's a certain vehicle that's built in the UK. So I'm not going to say too much. Um, okay. Yeah, it's a, a fun track car. Which most people can guess what. We'll, we'll work out what it is. Um, but We've got the first one turning up this week, and we're going to start messing around with that, which should be great fun. Um, it's, it's a bit of fun start as with well. An L. <laughs> well, it doesn't, but it, it can be an L. Oh, okay. There's a okay. couple of companies that make them, shall we say, and they're all a certain style. Okay. Um, I think that. But, did and then really alongside good. that, yeah. we are about to start doing uh, battery module production next year. Cool. So we'll start actually building modules because we've seen the change for OEMs now moving self pack. So yeah. module production is starting to decrease. We've already started seeing it decreasing. Um, and the availability of the modules we want is starting to decrease, especially in the aftermarket, people that want to do second life, like currently a model three pack is pretty difficult to use in anything other than solar storage yeah, because yeah, yeah. it's like they're four long modules. So we're starting to see the OEMs go that route. So we're now trying to start moving towards how do we manufacture modules? to keep the aftermarket industry fed with, with supply of good quality modules. So that's our next, I think our next big thing is how do we start manufacturing battery modules to keep supplying ourselves mainly, but also other companies in the aftermarket as things go along with good quality modules, which there's that's some clever hear. things we're going to do with that as well. Some clever integrations and stuff we're going to put into those modules, um, but I'm not going to disclose too much about that yet. No, no, no. I, I, I totally get that. I, and I can't remember um if it says on the website is the universal battery pack is that an uh, lfp chemistry or is it uh kind of a nickel ncm or can so it currently depend? it's uh an N nmc oh yeah NMC, sorry. NMC. um currently but when we go to module manufacturing we will be able to offer lfp 
but also something called LMFP. So CATL next year release something called yeah, LMFP. Yeah. So adding magnesium in, which there's pros and cons with it. So it only ever hits 80 degrees. So doesn't set on fire, which is great. Um, it, our universal fact, which is currently 55 kilowatt hours with LMFP cells will maintain around 55 kilowatt hours. So that's really good. Right. But alongside that, they're also releasing a new NMC cell. And then you go, oh, but the new NMC will give us 70 kilowatt hours in the same battery pack. So oh, you're wow. in this point where you can have completely non-flammable systems, which in certain scenarios is great. Like mining vehicles, boats, all that world, great. Yeah. But I don't know if we're quite at the point yet of reducing the size of the battery pack because of fire risk or whether we're still at the point we need bigger battery packs. Like I don't, the point's not quite there yet. Interesting, so yeah. It's at what point do we say 300 mile range is enough in a classic car, make the battery pack smaller, lighter, safer, or is that not enough? Like we're trying to work that out ourselves at the moment is go actually 55 kilowatt hours in say a Porsche is 200 mile range. So right. we could swap them over to LM, you know, LMFP. And then they're also no fire risk at all. So it's trying to work out, uh, you know, do we as a company take the decision to do not keep increasing our range, but increase our safety level? Like, at what point do we make that decision? Because that could be good or bad for us. Either it could be really good and then people want to buy more product from us. Right. But also our competition could keep giving more range, but have the fire risk. And it's, it's trying to understand the culture in different countries to go at what point is that trade-off. Like Tesla do it on their short range. So the Model 3 short yeah. range is an LFP, but it takes up the same amount of room as their NMC battery does with their long range. So it's showing that the transition is starting to happen because Tesla are already starting to do it. Um, we just haven't worked out yet how to do it. But with our, our own module manufacturing on that same manufacturing line, we could feed in LFP batteries or NMC batteries and produce exactly the same visual module to go in exactly the same battery pack. So we can make a decision at that point then rather than having to stock loads of each and not know we yeah. could we could basically chop and change depending on which customers that pack for what do they want do they want like improved safety or do they want more range now admittedly from an improved safety point we've never had a pack ever have an issue right. from a fire safety point of view anything so just put it out there you know they are pretty damn safe and normally the only time you get an issue is when there's a overcharge or someone's crashed it Right, but there right. is still a risk there, obviously. So I think that's one thing. We, we're just going to have to sound out the market over the next couple of years and work out when is that time to transition and say we're only doing like LMFP batteries that are fully non-flammable and therefore our stuff is way safer. And at that point, you start going, well, actually, can we make battery packs out of different material? Can we change the way we package True. stuff? Because actually, from a safety point of view now, if you do damage it, it's non-flammable. So then other changes start happening as well um, from other approaches. So I think there's there's a lot of excitement in the industry for years to come, shall we say, and there's going to be a lot yeah. of changes. It's just when you choose to take make those changes as a company um, from a production point of view. And I think we'll see the same thing with the OEMs as they've invested billions and billions of dollars in their production lines. Certain OEMs will not transition to a different module type for some time because they've got to get their money back. They can't right. afford to write those losses off. Um, and that's that's the thing is it's it's a juggling act very much for a lot of these OEMs of where do they commit to what cell type for now and at what point do they cross over to a new cell type without it having a massive impact on their on their financials. 
Yeah, and I, I think it has been pretty fascinating to see. And I, I think a lot of people weren't expecting to see how quickly LF, I think both technologies, but also just LFP show how resilient it can be and find ways to even make it more energy dense that it's getting to the point that it's competitive to what NMC was just a couple of years ago. And then NMC is just really taken off even further. So I, I think you're totally right that um, I think LFP is going to be probably become the main or L, I mean, variants of LFP become kind of the mainstream, yeah. but still be a decent market for um, applications, whether that be like a motorsport or a one-off thing where, yeah, having that extra kind of power and it's still in a lot of ways safer uh, than a combustion engine vehicle can be anyway. Um, that I, I think there's really, I, I think it's a very exciting time. And I think the way you guys are approaching it is spot on. And uh, you're totally right. Once you start kind of getting these non-flammable solutions, then you start, <coughs> the delta between weight savings starts changing again, because you also have less stuff that you have to kind of pre, uh, proactively build into the system. Yeah, um, this is very, very different. I, I, ha I have to go back to the Defender kit, though. I can't stop thinking about that because now I really, <laughs> there's a lot in there with what you said. And I'm kind of curious how much of that you plan to productize beyond just the Defender kit and be for other cars as well, let's say being in the American market, like a classic Ford Bronco. Or is that kind of the plan to make yeah, it no, so, so more productized? Think, or? Yeah, so the Universal Pack, for instance, will fit should fit the Bronco as it is. Um, and the new torque veteran gearbox with the Zonic setup, we need to sell them in volume. Like that gearbox has cost us a lot of money to develop. And yeah. the first batch of those gearbox are costing us a lot of money to produce. So we need to work out how we can get those gearbox into volume. Because cool. the higher volume we can produce, the better we can do from a pricing point for the end users. So um, we will be looking at productizing certain components, like the seat box, we won't ever sell that separately because obviously that's tied with the Defender kit. So there's going to yeah. be certain bits that we won't be selling outside of the kit. Um, but when it comes to the motor gearbox setup and the universal box, obviously, um, potentially maybe the coolant system setup. So it might be we offer a VCU with all the valves and all the bits to do an AC cooling system. And then the, gotcha. the, the end user can pipe it all and do all that stuff. But we've given them all the base bits they need and the control of it, at least. Um, a bit like we do. And we also do the same thing with our CCS kit. Like we sell a kit for CCS for people to add to their current battery pack. Um, as long as they're using an Orion BMS, they can just add it in to some level when start doing CCS rapid charging. So there's there's certain items we will product productize definitely, um, just to try and help us get our volumes up. And potentially, you know, we may work with other companies to develop kits for things like the Bronco and stuff. It's just trying to work out where is the where is the volume in the market needed, uh, and what are specific vehicles to choose to do large volume kits for. And at what point do we start doing a a lower value vehicle? in higher volume at a lower price. Like when do we, it's sort of Tesla model in that you start with, start with the Roadster, then you move to the S and the X, right. then you move to the model three, and then they move to the model two at some point as well, just to really bring the pricing point down. We're sort of following probably a very similar, a similar model in that point is as we get larger and larger volumes, we can potentially do lower value vehicles, a better pricing point. Um, Which is great. And the features, you know, if you look at the model three, it has every single feature the model S had. And the Model S will right. double the value vehicle. And it, so it shows that as you just do more and more with that technology, it just becomes second nature and you just put it in everything. Right. Um, no, I mean, all of that is so so cool and great to hear. I, I guess one of my other questions would be, given how much you're doing 
with different systems for the defender. And you're talking about, you're trying to find and optimize those efficiencies. Is your team kind of looking at also doing low voltage systems and kind of making that maybe more simplified and kind of a ways to update those or to make it at least easier, let's say, I want to update my Defender and put heated seats in it and just kind of like trying to figure out what maybe some of those optimizations are around improving the traditional low voltage systems that you could kind of put in. Um, we haven't yet, mainly because a lot of the Defender Special stuff we talked to already produce new harnesses for their vehicles. Gotcha. Um, so if you look at companies like Arconic and stuff that we're working closely with, they already produce brand, every vehicle, that every Defender they make, they put a brand new wire harness in that they make in-house which has all those extra features in it. Yeah. So a lot of the defender shops will automatically do that. So it's sort of, we need to pick our battles, I suppose. Oh, for sure. <laughs> so for how sure. Far, and how that's far a get? lot of work. Um, yeah. Yeah. But a lot of them will be able to put heat seats in and they will put all that stuff in to help on efficiency and heat steering wheels and heat windscreens. And there's all those bits that they need to look at adding in to increase efficiency. But it also depends on what the customer base is as well. Is uh, I think when it comes to the, when we get into the more higher volume, lower value vehicles, that's when you start going, actually, those vehicles need to have heated seats. They need to have a heated windscreen because actually it's more cost effective to do that because it benefits them on range in the winter. So there's sort of, there's there's ploys there to take um, definitely that's around That's interesting, that. um, yeah. And there's also the ploy, I think mean, I've got obviously your notes in front of me. So the other thing is obviously looking at the B2G side of things, um, which is where it becomes... Uh, even more of an asset when it comes to the classics and the conversion of sort of more regular vehicles because if you can do the V2G tie-up, suddenly your vehicle becomes your battery pack in your house and then you can justify having a classic electric because you know also that's your $10,000, $20,000 battery pack you're going to put into your house as well. So right. it sort of doubles them up. We're doing a lot of work in that area, but we're waiting for the chargers to catch up now. So there's not many companies doing V2G chargers. They just right. don't seem to be a thing yet. And well, and here in the US too, now. it's a lot more difficult with just kind of our wiring infrastructure and grid. Whereas I know in kind of the UK and Europe, how most houses are wired, it's actually a lot easier to do that. Um, yep. Whereas here, it definitely usually requires like panel upgrades and a few other things. But I guess speaking of chargers and speaking of the US market, obviously a lot of the OEMs have been kind of going to the North American charging standard or announced that they will be going towards that. Is that something your team is kind of looking at or kind of waiting to see if there's volume to make that investment as a part of these kits you're doing? So the North Island Charging Standard runs the same communications as CCS. Mm -hmm. So from that point of view, in theory, our CCS system would work with the North American Charging Standard connector on it out of the box. The difference Great. is with the North American Charging Standard is you the DC pins are also your live and neutral. Right. So the one thing we've got to look at now is how we produce a, a small inline product that can basically switch between AC DC on that that input line. So it basically just when 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 you plug into DC, it basically opens two contactors to bypass the AC charger on board to just go straight to the battery pack. But then when you're AC charging it, you know, opens the contactors for the DC, it moves it across to the AC charger and doesn't allow the basically the power to go to the battery pack. So we just need to work out how to do that bit sensibly um, in sort of a compact manner. So we have been considering that, do we do an update to the universal pack and put it all inside the universal pack and then just have the three pin AC coming out into the charger from the universal pack. So it just flows through and out. Like is, is that a solution? 
Um, so we're trying Absolutely. to work out yeah, what's the best approach to do with that. So it's something we, we've been looking at. It's something we know we can do. But it's also we we're also not able to get the car side connectors yet because they haven't all the companies reached out to that are going to start making them haven't started making them yet or started right. making them in any volume that you can buy them. So you can buy, you know, use Tesla ones to do testing <laughs> right. with, but you can't go and buy a brand new car side charge port yet. Like they're just not in production yet, but it will come. So we're aware of it. We like the idea because most vehicles have a fairly small fuel cap. So right. the North American charging standards actually allows you to fit them inside an original fuel cap without modifying the vehicle at all. So from that point of view, it's great. And if we had our way, we would just put North American charging standards onto every single kit, even if it's in the UK and Europe, and just supply it with an adapter kit, adapter plug because it yeah. would fit in the original fuel cap place. So it would make our life a lot easier because we just run the same across the board. And then if you need to run CCS type two, you just put an adapter on it. I think that's what happened with the Model S's and the Model X's in the UK at the start. Right, and that, right. that stayed around for quite a long time. And I wouldn't be surprised if things go back that route. Interesting. Because it's a, it's more compact. It's easier to package for us. So we are openly looking at it. It's just, I think it's still going to be a year away because of gotcha. just availability of product. For sure. And I, I, that doesn't surprise me at all with just even the OEM saying it's at least a year away for them to get the manufacturing and that ramped up. Um, wow. Yeah. I, I am very excited to learn and see more of, yeah, I guess, as far as the defender, uh, <laughs> uh, product, can you share pricing or a ballpark of what that might be or how you're expecting that to kind of be priced in the U S yet? Uh, it's going to be B2B only. Gotcha. So Fair. I need to work out how we do the pricing. So most of the pricing will be shared with other businesses. Um, for them fair. to sort of take on. I mean, I got so UK I need to pass your legacy EV yeah. to find out the, yeah, which yeah. is totally understandable. It's not, it's not a cheap kit. Let's just put right. it that way. I, I, was, I mean, the <laughs> with everything you said, that's the first I've heard of a yeah. uh, dual transaxle, which would be so sweet, but will not be cheap. Um, it's more if you want the best. We're trying to make sure we produce a system that is the best system we can possibly yeah. produce. Um, and that's what Felton wants to stick known for we want to make sure we're producing the best kits on the market um and you know it does come up at a cost but as we get into larger volumes it'll actually potentially become the best systems on the market at the better price on the market because we'll be producing more and more and more of them so we're always trying to work out how we do cost savings and bring the costings down so which we're starting to see slowly as we become more vertically integrated as a company and do more and more in-house we're starting to get more and more control over that but i think uh up till now, we've been so dependent on external supply. Um, but right. the next year, with our own module manufacturing and stuff, we'll start having more and more control over our supply chain, which means we can start bringing pricing down. Later. Yeah, and I, I think it's it sounds like, um, and I'd be curious if there's any other things you're seeing, but kind of looking through the next few years, it seems like at least for your team uh, and maybe the larger EV market, because so many of the auto EMs are kind of going the cell pack route, um, really growth for you will be kind of taking more and more and becoming more vertically integrated and taking a lot of this stuff in-house yourself. Do you see that kind of being the big kind of difference maker for what your team is trying to do and to really get to the scale you're looking for? Yeah, we need to. I mean, we're bringing battery management systems in-house very soon. 
we've stopped, chosen mm -hmm. not to bring VCUs in house because we work very closely with AEM and they do a very good job. So we've just stuck with them on VCUs for now. Oh, um, but it depends all down to volume. But the bigger and bigger you get, the more you want to bring in house. But it's also picking your battles. I think like, yeah. what are the big yeah, quick yeah. wins first. Um, the only time we tend to bring more in house is when we start getting issues with product. That seems to be the thing. Like like CCS was who's doing a CCS kit? Uh, no one's doing a CCS kit. And then we tried a couple of different CCS kits and they just didn't work properly. You know, so it was like, right, we're going to have to do this in house. Um, you know, and we've had issues with our CCS kits. You know, and we still find odd bugs in the system now, but we put things in place that we know we could go and do updates on those kits in the field really easily if we did find a bug because CCS is really bloody hard. Um, yeah, yeah. And it's, you know, and they, they keep bringing new chargers out, which run in a slightly <laughs> different way to the other chargers because they didn't follow the standards. And then, so we're, we're continually doing testing on CCS because there's new chargers coming out. And then we've got to make tweaks to the software to work on a new charging type because they've made tweaks. So, that's going to be a never-ending battle, I think, over at least the next couple of years until it really does standardize from mm -hmm. a CCS charging point of view. Um, I think in the US, it's not too bad because you've only got very specific makes of CCS charger. But the UK, you've probably that. got like 15, <laughs> 20 different versions of that's, that's true. CCS you guys, charger. You guys definitely have thing. more variants and manufacturers yes. over there. Uh, that's the I, issue. They all do something slightly differently. Yeah. I, I was, uh, I mean, I rented a Model 3, but I, I did try a couple of just public ones that, uh, a couple of times just to try it when I did a road trip from uh, London through Cornwall. And yeah. uh, it was still a lot of fun. And obviously the superchargers were just the easiest by far. But it was also just interesting talking to people there who had CCS vehicles. And they were definitely having some headaches, but it, it just didn't seem to be the same extent that we're seeing here in the US where it's, it's not even the, uh, the, it seems like the issue we run into more isn't even the communication failures. That is a thing, but it usually just the actual hardware itself is down. Um, so I, I think, I think that is finally going to change in the next year or two, but that, that's really what we've seen at least um, big issues for a lot of different auto OEMs here and uh, CCS vehicles. And I think that's obviously a big part of the reason why a bunch just said we're going to the North American charging standard. Uh, but that's a whole nother story. Uh, I, I just want to start opening up their chargers here for us right, to use right, them right. for other vehicles. So we have a handful of the UK the that we can, yeah. which is quite good because we can take a classic to a Tesla charger and charge up there. And we know they always work and they're really right. reliable because at the moment you turn up to a charger and you're like, is it our system that's not working or is the charger down? And you're right. in this weird thing, you go, are we chasing something that does not exist as a bug? And actually it's the charger that has the issue. So it, it becomes quite difficult from that point of view. Um, but it, hopefully it will continually imagine. improve. But this is what we're finding more recently with our customers is it's um, range anxiety doesn't seem to be the thing. It's charge, it's charge anxiety. For that sure. seems to be the issue. Um, yeah. So the word range anxiety my, doesn't exist to me anymore in my head. It's not really a thing. It's if I know I can pull up that charger and it definitely works, I have no problem. But when I go out in a Tesla, it's, uh, you need to stop here for this time, here for this time. You know you're going to pull up. You know the charger is going to work. So you don't worry about the fact you're going to pull up at a charger with 10 miles left. Like, yeah. It doesn't bother you because you know you're going to get there and the charger is going to work. Um, so I think that's the difference is all these people that don't have Teslas are, well, what if that charger doesn't work when I pull up at the service station? And I think that's that's the big issue we see for in sure. the UK. And it's a, so it's many variants of charger in different states. Right. And it's a fair concern, but yeah, I, I think, um, 
you're totally right. I was hearing those same kind of horror stories and concerns when I was over there uh, two summers ago, even. And it everyone I've talked to, it just seems like it is still persistent. But I, I really do want to say thank you so much, Chris. I know we've kind of gone over a little bit of our time. Um, one final question that I try to ask everyone, uh, and I, I think you've kind of shared some of these, but I'm just kind of curious to hear your take, especially with your, um, your part of the industry, and then your also views just in the UK and globally. But um, in your opinion, what are maybe innovative ways that industry or government can help accelerate the rollout of EVs and battery tech further? I think it's a very difficult one, um, <laughs> governmentally anyway. From a yeah. political point of view, it's quite difficult. I, I think the big issue is that every time a different government comes in, they change it. Right. So they need to work out a way of setting something in place that is a 10 or 20 year initiative, not something that they're going to keep changing every every couple of years. Um, one thing from the EV conversion space is there doesn't seem to be a huge amount of support, if any, from a global point of view. The I think a lot of the governments are so tied with the OEM selling new vehicles that they, they're not really as interested in the retrofit market. They don't put a value on the environment, I think is probably the way. So from my point of view, from it innovating ways to push the industry, I think they need to put a cost on carbon uh, tax on it, because I think it will make people go, I need to go green. Converting my car, classic car saves this much of a carbon footprint. Therefore, it's, it's worth me doing it from a tax incentive point of view and all this stuff. So I think there's, there's different ways they can approach it to try and speed the industry up. But from a carbon point of view, I think it might be the better way to do it because I had talked to someone the other day and I think he said to me that we're not calling it global warming anymore. We're calling it a human extinction event now because they've sort of said that it's just going too far and people aren't listening. So they need to just rejig the way it's being dealt with to make people realize that this isn't this isn't just that, ah, oh, it's global warming. This is actually right, a, right. a major, major problem that is becoming bigger, quicker than everyone ever anticipated. And what is the route to resolve that? And I think the government, in my opinion, globally need to put a tax on the, the carbon side of things and the damage to the environment. Because currently there, your tax on everything, everything's controlled, but they don't care if you're burning stuff. They don't care if you're damaging where you're living. They care about everything else. So I think it would, that would be a, but that'd be a huge change, obviously, from a global point of view, if they were actually, we are going to put a value on the, the, the emissions or your, your damage to the environment. And it would change so many companies' approach to things, like drastically overnight. overnight. Yeah. It no, would be I, an overnight change. I, I completely agree with you on that front. Um, actually, I mean, I've agreed with you a lot on the <laughs> on today's episode, <laughs> but uh, that especially as well. Um, so I, I really appreciate you sharing that and your point on that. But um Chris, I, this has been really uh, entertaining. Obviously, I'm foaming at the mouth to get uh, to learn more about this Defender uh, kit when it's available here in the US. But I just want to say thank you. And uh, if anyone is interested in conversion or even just follow, I, I think it's so entertaining just to follow your social media channels and what you're doing online. So um, Felton on Instagram, uh, Felton, I believe it's just Felton.com, correct? On as uh, your main website. Felton.com. Yeah, yeah, and then uh, Felton Systems is everything. Social media-wise, is all Felton Systems. Gotcha. Uh, but yeah, I, I can't recommend what you guys are doing enough. So please, anyone listening, give it a, a follow. Um, it's a great way just to learn, even if you're not looking at doing a conversion just yet or just want to learn more about EVs and kind of the safety and a lot of the engineering that goes into it that I, I just don't think people are getting the exposure to or fully understanding with kind of the marketing out there for new EVs in general. So 
just to wrap up, thank you so much, Chris, and uh, looking forward to having you on again soon. Thank you so much.